Um, This is Matthew 27, verse 57 through 66. Um, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his, in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to think about those characters. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a member of the ruling class. Text says he had become a follower of Jesus, but now Jesus is gone. Perhaps it made sense to risk identification with him when he was alive, when he was showing his love and power by healing and feeding people, but now he's gone. And what can any of us do when we slam headlong into the finality of the loss that death brings? We can almost see Joseph shake himself out of a daydream. Well, at least I can offer help. I can help with the arrangements. We have a family tomb. And he no more knew that he was fulfilling an ancient promise than any of us knows what to do when we shuffle through a hospital lobby trying to think of what we might say. And can't you hear the critics? Maybe Jesus' own friends. He barely knew him. What does this rich man think he's doing? Jesus is a friend of the poor. And then there's Pilate, the chief of the occupying force. Maybe he had always dreamed of something more than this provincial post way out in the obscure corner of the empire, but he still had to keep the peace. A day before, he had just asked Jesus, what is truth? Half dying to know the answer and half knowing that there wasn't one. Now his view of the world had been validated. Another pathetic rebellion had been put down. Another upcountry Messiah had been shown the might of Rome and gone the way of the world. And now, like always, there's just a cleanup. Passover was over for another year. Time to retire back to Caesarea by the sea. Breathe the fresh salt air. Enough of this congested city. And his question lingers. What is truth? And then there... There are the Marys, those whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. 
They had heard Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God breaking in, a kingdom of love and mercy, a kingdom of truth and justice, of healing, of homecoming, of life. They had seen him show unheard of power at the tomb of Lazarus. They had seen him deftly step through any trap that the leaders or teachers of the law had set for him. But now they had seen him die. The horror of the cross. Before it was a sign for us of hope, it was a sign of agony and dominance, of enemies that could not be defeated, of Rome and of death. And so they sit numb and shocked when all the heroes of the rest of the Bible, the apostles, had fled. Here are these mothers of the faith keeping a holy vigil in their grief. And then we have the accusers, the enemies of Jesus. They must have barely been able to believe that their plan had worked. They had seen Jesus' power. Maybe they half expected he would find a way to get away, make fools of them again. But they, they had done it. He had died and they had seen it. And now they had to make sure that the movement was snuffed out. They had eliminated the leader and it was time to round up the followers. Their influence was secure. Surely all the words of this self-appointed rabbi magician would be seen for what they were. Just an unwelcome distraction from the law they had received from Moses. The law the people depended on them to uphold. Their accusations had landed. They had stuck. And then we have the guards. Perhaps they were due for a weekend off, some R&R after working overtime leading up to the Passover Now they've been called in for the worst kind of duty, standing guard overnight in the cold. And there they are, a cast of characters we can recognize. A person with time and resources who just isn't sure how to help. And suddenly the idea comes, maybe I can help with the arrangements. A person who quietly believes that their cynical view of the world has been proven right again. The world is just one disaster after another. Didn't I always know that? And there are those who are stunned in grief, no longer caring how they appear, letting out the wail of pain, trying to fumble for reasons to keep going, sitting vigil in their loss. There are those who are wanting to take the proper steps to make sure nothing like this will ever happen again. There are city officials on their duties, some with great care and some in the haze of exhaustion, a cast of characters we can recognize. John Ortberg, in his book, Who Is This Man About Jesus, has a chapter on the day between Good Friday and Easter, the Saturday. Surely we are in a Saturday moment right now. In between the cross and the resurrection. And so because I, like you, don't know what to say, I'm going to read to you a little bit from that chapter Saturday is the day with no name, the day when nothing happened, 
Now only a handful of followers remain. Friday was a nightmare day. Friday was the kind of day that is pure terror, the kind when you run on adrenaline. On Saturday, when Jesus' followers wake up, the terror is past, at least for the, a moment. The adrenaline is gone. Saturday is the day they realize they have to go on. Those who believe in Jesus gather quietly, maybe. They remember it's what people do. Things that he said, what he taught, things he did, people he touched or healed. They remember what it, it, it felt like when Jesus wanted them. They remember their hopes and dreams. They were going to change the world. Now it's Saturday. And maybe they talk about what went wrong. What in God's name happened? None of them wants to say this, but in their hearts, they're trying to come to grips with this unfathomable thought. Jesus failed. Jesus ended up a failure. Noble attempt, but he couldn't get enough followers. He couldn't convince the chief priests. He couldn't win over Rome to make peace. He couldn't get enough ordinary people to understand his message. He couldn't even train his disciples to be courageous at the moment of great crisis. Everybody knows Saturday. Saturday is the day your dream died. You wake up and you're still alive. You have to go on, but you don't know how. Worse, you don't know why. This odd day raises a question, why then is there a Saturday? It doesn't seem to further the storyline at all. We might expect that if Jesus was going to be crucified and then resurrected, God would just get on with it. It seems strange to spend to spread two events over these three days. In its own way, perhaps Saturday should mark the world as much as Friday and Sunday. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday lie at the heart of the ancient calendar. They attribute great significance to the notion that this event was a three-day story. The Apostle Paul wrote, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Paul adds again, according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures are filled with what might be called three-day stories. When Abraham is afraid he's going to have to sacrifice Isaac, he sees the sacrifice that will save his son's life on the third day. Joseph's brothers get put in prison and they are released on the third day. Israelite spies are told by Rahab to hide from their enemies and that, they will be, that they'll be safe on the third day. When Esther hears that her people are going to be killed, she goes away to fast and pray. On the third day, the king receives her favorably. It is such a reoccurring pattern that the prophet Hosea says, come let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that that we may live in his presence. All three days stories share a structure. On the first day there is trouble. And on the third day, there is deliverance. On the second day, there is nothing. Just a continuation of trouble. The problem with three-day stories is you don't know it's a third-day story until the third day. When it's Friday, when it's Saturday... As far as you know, deliverance is never going to come. It may just be a one-day story. 
the one day of trouble, and it may last. But we are in a three-day story. How do we live through a week like this? Where do we go with our pain? Perhaps the most important thing for us to do is just try to find the right questions and to be humble enough not to say we have the right answers. What can we say about God? What can we say about each other? None of us are traumatized in the same way. And that makes us hard to understand to one another sometimes. Why don't they experience it the way I do? Where can we go from here? Those are my questions. You have yours to add. What can we say about God? What can we say about each other? And where can we go from here? I want to take each one for just a moment. What can we say about God? We certainly cannot say why. We certainly cannot say why. And let us humble ourselves and stop our mouths from trying. When we ask God why, he most often gives us the gift of silence. A great heavy silence. Because God does not entrust us with his master plan. He gives us himself. He gives us himself. So while we cannot say why, we can say that he has entered our pain And he's come near to us in our grief. We can look at the world as it is and know that it breaks God's heart. That death is not a part of his long-term plan. That he is present in our tears. That Jesus was a man of grief, acquainted with sorrow. He is a high priest who knows our weakness and has been through it as well. Whatever we would say about suffering and the problem of evil and brokenness and death. God has taken his own medicine. Plunged himself in the middle of it with us. Entered the story. So we can say he has entered our pain and grief. We can say that it will not always be this way. I know I've already read you a lot, but I want to read you something from Frederick Buechner because this is just, I'm just passing on the stuff that's been keeping me whatever version of sane we can be on a week like this. The gospel is bad news before it is good news, it is the news that man is a sinner that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror and all the lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. 
That is the tragedy. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That is the comedy. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin, the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe in them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a damn. In answer, the news of the gospel is that extraordinary things happen to him just as in fairy tales. Extraordinary things happen. It is impossible for anyone to leave behind the darkness of the world. He carries on his back like a snail. But for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. And altogether, they are the truth. The tragedy, the comedy, and the fairy tale of the gospel. What can we say about each other? We can make meaning in showing love. I've never been more proud to be the pastor of this congregation than this week. In senseless tragedy, in agonizing pain, in all of the doubt, in all the questions, you guys have shown up over and over again. The first creation was bringing order out of chaos and those who are part of the new creation in Christ are, are called to, to help bring order out of chaos. To help to, to show the meaning of love in the midst of tragedy and I just applaud you all in your faith, in your generosity, in your prayers, in keeping vigil. Tuesday night was, was one of the most beautiful moments I've ever been a part of in this church when we just held each other and wept together. When our questions falter before God, we, we can know that we can embrace one another. We can give the gift of love. We can give the gift of silence. We can give the gift of presence. can give the gift of believing the best in one another. We can give the gift of understanding that no one is traumatized in the same way and so we have to extend grace and mercy. No one's doing it wrong. We comfort each other with the comfort that we've received from God and what that looks like is we cry out all of our tears and then we get to work and then we cry out all of our tears again and we go to sleep. I just want to remind you who you are, sons and daughters of God. You're filled up with the very life that walked out of the grave. You are the body of Christ. One member can't embrace. We need the body. Somebody told me this week you're supposed to hug someone for 20 seconds in a week like this. Just give that a shot. It is so long. Just took us an eternity in there. You might need to start with the Christian side hug. We make meaning in showing love. 
We are the body of Christ. We are family. My highest hope for our church, one of them, I have them all ranked. One of my highest hopes for our church is that we would always be a place that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep because that's the opposite of selfishness. For someone's happiness to be your happiness means you have to move into their joy and let the good thing that's happened to them be your good thing and you rise with them. And to weep with those who weep means that you move out of the cage of selfishness into their pain and their grief becomes your grief and we bear it together. So it is half the load because we're under the rock together and it's double the joy because we're sharing it. Patrick's grandma says that and she's right. We are the body of Christ and we are a family. And we are also a temple. There's a lot of crazy stuff in the scriptures that's very challenging to understand. But one thing that God keeps hitting on is that when people try to build him a house, he keeps saying, ah, this is just not going to really work. Because I want to dwell in you. I want to be filling your life like a temple each of you individually as sons and daughters and then this is a temple we have made a middle school into a sanctuary we are making our homes into places of God's presence we are ministering to one another around our dinner tables we are holding hands as we walk past the intersection and we are hosting the presence of God for one another we are speaking words of mercy like a priest to one another We're receiving confession of brokenness like priests to one another. You are the priesthood of all believers. You are no less equipped to minister the presence of God than anyone. So when you give the gift of silence, when you give the gift of presence, when you give the gift of a seamless gift card, when, when you hit the GoFundMe, when, 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 when you, when you sh- shuffle around and you don't know what to say, when you make your spreadsheets, when you, when you care for one another, we're ministering the presence of God. I got here early and, not too early, and I just saw around this whole school, people just like giving the extra, just making sure, everyone just caring and loving and, 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 and hosting. You are the body of Christ, embrace one another. You are family, share meals together, and you are a temple And you are the priest in a temple. So where can we go from here? We cry out in the wail of of grief. And yet even in our agony there is a hope. We are not grieving without hope. But we are grieving. And we keep those things. We cry out and then we keep breathing. We keep going. I'll give you Ortberg one more time. From a human standpoint, we think of the miraculous day as Sunday. The day the man Jesus is risen from the dead. I wonder if from heaven's standpoint, the great miracle isn't on Saturday. When Jesus is born, 
The skies are filled with the heavenly host praising God because that baby is Emmanuel, God with us. Somehow God in a manger, somehow God in a stable, somehow God on earth. Now on Saturday, the angels look down and see what? God in a tomb. The miracle of Sunday is that a dead man lives. The miracle of Saturday is that the eternal son of God lies dead. So Jesus Christ defeats our great enemy death, not by proclaiming his invincibility over it, but by submitting himself to it. If you can find this Jesus in a grave, if you can find him in death, if you can find him in hell, where could you not find him? Where will he not turn up? And he can turn up in his manifest presence by the Holy Spirit, and he can turn up in his manifest presence by you. The body of Christ, the family of God, the temple of his presence, grieving, Yes, and hoping, yes. And in our grief, we will not settle for cheap words or sentiments. We will look the pain and the brokenness and the death of this world in the face and we will not look away. But we do not grieve without hope. Abby and Josh... are the forerunners of our hope. A couple of years ago, I have their permission to tell this. A couple of years ago, Ruthie and Jonathan were having a game night at their house playing Settlers of Catan, have a few friends over. That's such a long game. (laughs) Abigail was in her crib They heard a thump. They didn't really think anything of it because this is New York and they have neighbors, same as you. And they just thought someone bumped up against a wall. But after a few minutes, Jonathan decided to go in and check on Abigail. He went in and she wasn't in her room. So he looked around, where could a two-year-old be? And he started to get concerned and he went out and he told Ruthie, I can't find her. He went through her room, looked everywhere. You can, you've all, we have that feeling where now, now you start to feel like, oh. They go into their room, and this is the scene. Abigail had taken gold nail polish and painted every surface of the room gold. The walls, the desk, the bed, the computer. She painted the whole room gold. And then she sat down in Harvey's chair, in Jonathan's chair. She had a cigar in her mouth. (laughs) That is my favorite story ever. She wheeled around in the chair with a cigar in her mouth and just looked at her parents like, what? I made this place gold. <laughs> I heard that story and I couldn't shake that it, it's so amazing 
It shows her personality and vibrancy. But I also can't shake that, for me, I think that's a prophetic picture. These kids, they're made in the image of God. And where they went, there was gold. Josh and Abby spread gold. And then they sat down in victory with a cigar. (laughs) Ahead of all of us, but forerunners of our hope. Forerunners of our resurrection. They carried the glory of God. Everywhere they went, it was there. And we are the better for having shared in it. And now they sit down in victory. I don't know if they let kids have cigars in heaven. They did not cover that in any of my theology courses. So where do we go? Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep breathing, keep praying. We press into their memories. We tell their stories around our tables. We tell our stories around our tables. We remember the thing that this situation reminds us from our family and then we tell and we keep telling until we're both crying and laughing around our tables like, Do you know that's the most common picture of heaven? A bunch of people sitting around a table crying and laughing at a banquet. That's our hope. We're in a three-day story. And right now it's Saturday. But we are people who believe that Sunday comes. And that's not some vague hallmark sentiment in a busted and broken messed up world. That is a full-throated cry that death is real and yet death does not have the last word. Jesus was not just a nice hippie rabbi who said some sweet things about forgiveness. He was God coming into the world to face death head on. And when our last enemy has exhausted the last weapons of fear and violence and death, we believe the story has just begun. There is a testimony of the stone, the one character I didn't mention. The stone was rolled away. And if we won't cry out resurrection, the scriptures say the stones will. So we'll we'll huddle up together. We'll keep whispering it until we can cry it out. We'll keep shedding our tears, trusting that God is in, in those tears and near to the brokenhearted, near to the crushed in spirit. And we'll keep whispering resurrection until we can cry it out. We move through our days in grief and in hope, giving the love that we have received. Let me pray for you. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. These two little ones made our, li- our lives gold, God. They spread your glory. Would you help us to rearrange 
our lives in light of this moment? Would you help us to rearrange our lives in light of this three-day story? Would you help us to rearrange our lives around the cross and the resurrection? Would you help us to be the body of Christ and embrace one another? Would you help us to be family? Would you help us to be a temple and to be priests in it? Would you, would you so surround Jonathan and Ruthie right now, Lauren and Charles and all of their family, Sam, would you so surround them with your presence, with the comfort of your love? Would you help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we move through this together, as we lock arms and we slowly move forward? We have been torn into pieces. Will you come on the third day and restore us? In Jesus' name, amen.